Hi everyone, welcome to church. Today we're going to be continuing on in our Finding Joy series through the book of Philippians. So let's get right to it and turn, to, turn with me to chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort if, of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and today as we seek to find more joy and, and pursue a life that is joyful, Lord, in you, I pray that you would guide us, that you would speak to our hearts and help us to change where we need to change, and help us to fortify what needs to be fortified, and Lord, help us to do away with what needs to be done away with. I pray that you would be here with us, guide us, and Lord, speak to us today. We love you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, today we're going to be talking about unity. We're going to be finding joy through unity. And now, unity within the church uh, leaders, uh, really, uni unity among the church and among the believers of, of Christ is something that is talked about at great lengths within leadership in the church. And even recently, it's become more prevalent even within the church body itself, talking about unity and how can we be unified um, as one body of believers. There is a great desire for unity among the believers, and that is a good thing, and we should strive to be unified. And as a family of God, it makes sense that we live in unity with one another. This is an easy thing to talk about, and, and sometimes it's actually quite a difficult thing to talk about, but, and it's a good desire, but it is very difficult to achieve this unity within our believers, especially in the day and age that we live. There are so many different opinions and thoughts and processes of doing things that we, we disagree and we fight amongst ourselves. And so today we're going to be talking about finding that joy that, that comes through unified belief with one another within the body of Christ. And so one of the clear definitions that we want to talk about is what unity means to us. The first thing really that we should talk about is, as you guys may know, we need to ask ourselves the question here in verse 1. Paul says, therefore, if there is any uh, consolation in Christ, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, what's the therefore? Therefore. And so we're going to go back a little bit to what, we, what uh, Tyler talked about last time. Uh, which is that living, uh, worthy life of the gospel. But we're going to read those verses again from 27 to 30 of chapter 1. So you should be able to just look down at your Bible there and see it. But we're going to start in verse 27 here. And it says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me, here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. So we see 
Paul exhorting the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, to live lives that are worthy of the calling and of the gospel of Jesus. He even mentions unity through, quote, standing fast in one spirit and in striving together for the gospel. This presents that idea that we are working together for that sole purpose that if you go back two weeks, we talked about uh, in finding joy through our purpose, which is glorifying God. We have our purpose in glorifying God. We have a family that we partner with in the gospel. We live lives that are sanctified, or that's a $10 word for being set apart with one another. And we are to do all of that in unity. We are to do all of that together as one cohesive unit. Now, unity means that we stand together in a world that desires to tear us apart. Being unified means that we work together against the powers and the principalities of this age, against the enemy and his desires to ruin us because his purpose is to seek, kill, and destroy. And so we stand in unity together against those things what unity does not mean is uniformity. And, and, and I'm going to say that again. What unity does not mean is uniformity. We are all are to be uniform to Jesus Christ, but not necessarily to others. You see, unity, unity desires to form a cohesive unit that works together for a similar purpose, for a common goal. Uniformity seeks to recreate the same exact part of a machine for the same exact purpose, for the same exact task. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read a, a pretty big uh, portion of this chapter because it deals very clearly with how the body of Christ is unified in one sense, but individual in another. So chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 12, Paul says this, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. It doesn't matter who you are, you've been baptized into the body of Christ if you're a believer. And have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, would there, where would be the hearing? If the, whole, if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in one body, just as he pleased, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, nor to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much, no, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor and are un unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 
Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these two in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And so we see here in this chapter, Paul is discussing the idea almost in a very um, practical sense that we are all members of the same body, but we don't all have the same task or function. You see, again, unity seeks to unify us as one body with a common goal, but uniformity seeks to create us all into the same body part. Uniformity desires to make us all part of one singular task. And so unity does not mean uniformity. Another way to think about it is, is that uniform, uniformity, uniformity desires to win a fight where unity seeks to achieve a common goal. Oftentimes when someone is seeking uniformity, you can tell because they're trying to convince you that their way of thinking is either A, the only way of thinking, or B, even the best way of thinking, and, and that they are trying to uh, possibly even angrily convince you that their way is the only way, and that is uniformity. And we are not called to uniformity except for in the body of Christ. Again, the idea that Jesus Christ has made us uniform to him, but we have different, we have different jobs within the body. There are different callings within the body. We have the same goal purpose, which is to glorify God in everything that we do as a body of believers. And when we come together through unity, when we practice unity within the body, we then glorify God within the body, which is achieving and, and reaching that common goal. Throughout church history, there have been many who have sought to distract the church from our common goal and purpose. Sometimes, and, and really the truth is far too often, it has worked. And this is why we have things like different denominations and we have different practices and we are very familiar with it in our own personal lives. I'm sure that all of us have stories of different sects, different, different denominations, different ways of doing things that sometimes are okay, sometimes are a little bit nervous, sometimes are outright wrong, but we all have examples of that. And there are many false doctrines and wrong theologies in the world. And doctrine does matter, and that's very important to know. Having a correct biblical theology is, is key to having a healthy relationship with Jesus as well as with the church. And so that's very important that we don't miss out on that. And if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, we see this again, Paul discussing this even with Timothy. And, and he says, as I urged you, in verse 3 of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy, he said, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may, be, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love 
from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which the same, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. There was a desire again by the Judaizers to go back to the law, to go back to the Old Testament way of thinking. And Paul is saying there is no purpose in this. And and really those people that are trying to make you do that are really just trying to cause strife within the body. They're trying, it's it's almost like um, healthy, happy, productive living is boring. And so they want to cause... They want to cause strife amongst the brethren. He says in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Again, understanding here that that we have a purpose and a calling and, and that that purpose and calling is found within the gospel of Christ. And we are to be about glorifying Jesus. We are to be glorifying Christ in everything that we do. And through that glorifying Jesus Christ, we desire to get to know him better. And through getting to know him better, we glorify him more. And he says in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And there, there's, the, there's a, a true rub is he was sincere in what he was pursuing, but he was sincerely wrong in what he was pursuing. And through Jesus Christ showing up to Paul and, and grabbing him, he's able to see that he was wrong. Verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in the first Jesus Christ might show all uh, long suffering as a pattern of those who are going to believe on him for every everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible of, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. Amen. And so we have this, this exhortation to Timothy and Paul spends really the rest of the book of first Timothy and oftentimes a lot of what Paul writes talking about making sure that we hold fast to true and right doctrine and that doctrine that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find it in places like first Corinthians. We also find it in the life of Jesus. Obviously we find it through scripture and we find that through having a biblical uh, worldview, a biblical theology and a biblical doctrine. And so that is why we come to church. That is why we study the scriptures. That is why we grow together in the things of God is so that we can grow in our knowledge and that helps us grow in our faith. Doctrine matters and theology matters and having a biblical worldview matters. Paul exhorts Timothy to stand for what matters. 
And for those of us reading it today, we should do the same. We should stand up for what matters. What matters, though, is the doctrine of Jesus Christ, not the flavor of the month with whether what's happening in the media or what's happening socially or what's happening in different causes amongst us. That, those are things that may be good, may not be good. They kind of are objective or subjective to what's going on in the world. But what we are to constantly stand fast in and together in, in unity, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing the gospel, knowing what he says the gospel is, and standing up for that within our world. We do not try to force our church family to conform to our personal convictions. That's the very definition of legalism is when I take my convictions from the Lord, he's told me to do a certain thing. When I tell, take that conviction and try and force it on anyone else, it may be good advice. It may be even godly advice, but I am not to f play the Holy Spirit in anyone else's lives. My job is not to convince anybody to believe what I believe exactly and do what I do exactly. My job is to present the gospel, live the gospel, live a call that is live a life that is worthy to the calling of the gospel, live a life that is glorifying Jesus Christ and live a life that is showing unity among the body. Otherwise, it's legalism. We encourage others to be like Christ and we are to join together for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And that is why the church exists. That is why churches existed. And, and really, this answers kind of some of the reasons why the church exists. But, but there, is, there comes a follow-up question, which is why, why even live in unity? Because we live in a, in a, in a culture that fosters independence. We live in a culture specifically today in age, and I don't know that it's been any different in the past or any different in the future, but we live in a culture specifically today that we can speak to that, that fosters the idea of nobody's gonna tell me how to live my life, especially in the Western world, especially in the Western world. And that means that few, if any people, uh, will tell us how to live our lives, will we'll have that influence in our lives. We strive for that independence and autonomy. That attitude has infiltrated into the church the same as anywhere else, and sometimes even in more situations than anywhere else, because we, we have this idea that the, I don't need the church, the church needs me. And we, we, we act on that. We, we live in what I like to call a, a Baskin-Robbins era of church living. And, and if you're not familiar with what Baskin Robbins is, Baskin Robbins is a, is a ice cream shop that has 31 flavors is what they say. And, and it's almost like, uh, whatever that card game is and the game that kids play or whatever, where you got to catch them all. You got to, you got to taste all of the flavors. And we live in that kind of a, that kind of a culture within the church world. There is, there is little point to the pursuit of unity within our churches because that requires work. It requires compromise and, and possibly, heaven forbid, having to change who I am and, and adapt to a new set of beliefs or even, even function within a, a different culture than maybe even what I'm comfortable with. Instead of all that, it's much easier if there's not unity with the church and myself, it's much easier for me to go find a church that I can find unity in because there's always going to be a church that has better worship or better teaching or better 
programming or better whatever, I can go find that. Or even more common is I'm going to go find a church that doesn't convict me of sin. I'm going to go find a church that speaks to how, how much God loves me, how much I am treasured in his eyes and all these things, which are not untrue things, but they also are missing half of the story because we don't deserve that love. We have done nothing to earn that love. And so it's much easier for me to leave one fellowship to join another one that agrees with me more because, because of comfort, because of enjoyment, because, well, this, this church provides more for my children or more for, more for me and my time. They're more loose with my time, whatever it may be. I can fit into any church and I can, I can really not have to change anything. Look, why change who I am for this one? Why, why change who I am for, for any other reason? I mean, God, I am who God made me, right? Like that's what we like to say. But the truth is, is yes, God made you like this, but God also wants to show you how you can use what you have been created as to glorify him, not so that you can just get your way the whole time. And it really boils down to pride. It really boils down to, I don't want to change. Nobody is going to tell me how to live my life. Nobody puts baby in a corner. And we, we that's an old reference. Um, we, we have that pride that, that takes over our lives and, and, and masks itself as, quote, I'm, I get fed more over here. Or, you know, you were not meeting the needs that I had as a person. Well, if there are needs that you have that we are not meeting as a church, then I encourage you to let us know so that we can address them and talk to you about it. Because you may have something to provide that we are missing, that we are overlooking, that we are not noticing within our, within our narrow focus. And so help us help you is the, is the, uh, the cheesy statement, I guess. But really it comes to pride. To look at why it is important for unity in, in Paul's context, we really need to first look at some of the context of the time in which he was writing this. So first off, the church was still young and in need of, of guidance from Paul. Now that's no different. It may be not as young as it was, but the church still needs guidance from the Holy Spirit through Paul's words. We still need guidance from Scripture. So that doesn't change. But there were, there were not, secondly, there were not 50 churches per community. Um, the church in Philippi was the only church in Philippi. Being put out of a church back then would have been devastating. It would have been life-altering. So if you remember, in fact, I'm going to turn there really quickly. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, there was a, a man who was sleeping with his, uh, with his stepmother and he was, uh, he was sleeping with her and the church was rejoicing over this publicly because they were free in Christ. And look how, uh, how much God has forgiven us is kind of the idea of what they were saying. And Paul is exhorting them in, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He's saying, look, this is not a good thing. And he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed, sacrificed for us. So here's the idea. 
is how devastating that would be. We miss how devastating that would be within our modern context because we, we don't see what it would have meant for this person to have gone through a, an offering up to Satan. And so we want to talk about that just really quickly. Basically, what was going on is this. You only had in Corinth, in Philippi, in Ephesia, <laughs> Ephesus, <laughs> you only had singular churches. The next church was 30, 40, 50 miles away, sometimes even 100 miles away from where you were. There was only one church in these cities. And so if the man in Corinth was offered up to Satan and, and excommunicated from the church, here's the situation. When you claimed to be a Christian, you were now uh, not looked at in a positive light from within the world view. So from outside the church, the, the outside church did not view you positively in that sense. And so you would have been very devastated to be offered up to Satan and excommunicated from the church because really at that point you have two options. One is you move 50, 60, 70 miles away, which is most people back in these days did not even travel that far in their entire life. Or two, you got right with the church because the world was not going to accept you as a person who claimed Jesus. They were not going to let you in. And so there was no other church to go to down the street. There was no other, all right, well, you, you kick me out of here. I'm going to go next door and I'll just start fellowshipping there. That wasn't an option. And so we have a, again, this kind of goes back to that Baskin Robbins mentality, but we have this, this freedom to move from church to church when we don't agree with what's going on. So why change? Again, that kind of becomes the main thinking, the main line of thought. And then finally, we want to talk about the New Testament as a whole was written under the assumption that the reader was a believer in Jesus Christ who desired close, in fact, primary relationship with Jesus and that they were coming under the authority of the local church. Now, this is obviously a scriptural biblical church, not just any church that says you should come under our authority, but they are coming under the authority of the local church. And this is the assumption that is being written by or under. This is what the book of Philippians, the, the entire New Testament is written under the assumption that you as a believer are coming under the authority of the local church in that desire for unity and fellowship within the body of Jesus Christ. Unity was less of an option back then. It really needed to happen because you guys were relying on each other to live sometimes. The church in Jerusalem was a good example of this. They came under hard times many times and they had to, they had to work together to find a way out of the hard times. And so unity was less of an option and more of a requirement, but we see in the first few verses of Philippians here that Paul gave them a clearer reasons to be unified. So let's look at chapter two, verse one again. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. We see basically that Paul is saying that if Jesus promises comfort and mercy, and if his promises of these things are true, then we should practice unity. 
We should be practicing these things because if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, then we should be practicing this unity. If we actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and, and when we believe him to be that, then we should, in verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, unified, having the same love, unified, being of one accord, unified, of one mind, unified. And so we, that's kind of why we are to be unified is because Jesus Christ is who he says he is, because we are a body of believers that works together with each other to stand together as a united front. But how? And that, that's super cool because I love how Paul does this. He literally writes it how in the next two verses. Verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2 say, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Each, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul gives us specific examples of how we can practice unity and bring about joy. We can bring about a joyful life. We see that humility becomes key to this whole process. We are not to put our, our needs, our wants, our opinions, our desires, or really anything else above anyone else's. We are to esteem others better than ourselves. We do, we do that by practicing practically verse 4. We look out for their, their interests as well. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew chapter 20, if you turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're asking him, James and John come to him and they ask him, hey, Lord, which one of us is going to, we want to sit next to you at, uh, at your right hand when we go to heaven. And can you make that happen? And Jesus is saying, look, it's not for me to decide, but you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with, speaking of their death. And so, the other disciples get angry because they're thinking that James and John are, are vying for position here. And Jesus says to them in verse 25 of chapter 20, Jesus called to them himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We are to glorify God in everything that we do. And through that, we will experience joy. This comes by denying, obeying, and changing to be more like Christ. There's that word change. We have to change. I tell people in marriage counseling, in normal counseling, whenever there is a problem that involves others, the only person that you can change is yourself. The only person that you can try and find how to be better about this situation, whatever the situation is that you're going through, the only person that you can change is you. And so we have to change to be more like Christ. As we become more like Christ, we glorify him more. We become like him by serving those around us. In business, it's called servant leadership. 
And the idea is it's not top down, it's, it's down top. It's, it's the idea of whoever is on top is actually serving the most. And that is the example that we see here in Matthew chapter 20 with Jesus Christ washing his disciples' feet. Sorry, not in Matthew chapter 20, but talking about the idea that the Son of Man did not come to ser be served, but to serve. We see him giving that example of servant leadership. It is our opportunity to love other people the way that Jesus Christ loves us. We serve them by humbly, uh, we, we humbly put ourselves at the bottom, we put them above us, and we, we esteem them, we put their needs above our own. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't take care of our needs, it just means that we put them above our own, we, we take care of them. This is not just countercultural. It's, it's really counter to our human nature. And, and that is the crux of this, is unity when, when it is true unification, meaning that we are changing, we are, we are desiring to be changed so that others can be esteemed higher than us, putting them before us, putting them above us. When we do that, it is counter to our human nature. And the point is that our human nature is not the benchmark for how we are to live our lives. This is completely countercultural to what's going on all around us in the media. Everything that you hear about within the media is all about how you can, can be whoever you wanna be, or you can do whatever you wanna do, or you can, you can do all of these things, and, and it doesn't matter what, what society tells you, all of these kinds of things. What we are saying is that my human nature, who, who I am, chemically, who I am biologically, who I am, whatever else, is not the benchmark for how to live a, a life that is glorifying to Jesus Christ. That is not the standard. What it is, how we are to live, is Jesus Christ. That is the nature that we are to have in ourselves. And that is when Paul is saying, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's saying that I am taking on the very nature of Jesus Christ and that my human nature has nothing to do with it in us anymore. That is what guides and directs us is Jesus Christ, his word, his love, his purpose in glorifying the Father. These are the things that we hold to. We hold fast to because it is key to us learning what it means to be the servant of all. This is one of the more difficult ways. We're going we're to wrap it up here. This is one of the most difficult ways to find joy. Unity takes work. It takes a desire and a willingness to die to myself and to put others first, which is counter to human nature. It means that even if I'm right, I'm not always right. It means, it means that I am not the most important end-all be-all in the world. As with many or most, really, really all areas of life, my opinions no longer matter and everything becomes about glorifying Jesus Christ. Everything. I find joy through living in unity within the body of Christ because there is comfort when we rest with each other and know that we want each other to succeed. When we desire the best for others, they tend to desire the best for us, and there is rest and comfort and joy within knowing that. And so we strive after that. If there's something in your heart right now,
that needs to change, then take a bold step and confess it to the Lord. Confess it and repent and live a life that has purpose in glorifying God through partnership with other believers that proves and shares a life that is living worthy by being unified within the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for providing the opportunity to be unified, not only with you, but with other believers. I pray that as we seek to change, Lord, I pray specifically even for my own heart that I would be willing to change so that unity can be accomplished, so that I can, I can experience that joy that really, Lord, only you can provide. That joy that you have given us through fellowship with other believers who, yes, may be weird or may be different or may, may be sandpaper personalities, Lord, but we get to serve them. We get to be with them and not because we are better, but because, Lord, we, we do not deserve the gift that you have given to all of us. We, we live these lives because you have given us something that we don't deserve. And we just want to say thank you. We want to serve you. And in serving you, we will serve others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just convict our hearts. Help us to change. Help us to be more unified in how we speak to one another, how we treat one another, and Lord, the opportunities that we take to serve one another. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.